If I'm not mistaken, this is the last Sunday that uh, women are able to sign up for the Abundance uh, Women's Retreat at the end of September and get the good discount. So I know everybody's in different places financially, but anytime you can get a discount, you take it. I don't know about you. I remember when I grew up, my mom used to always, mom, we didn't even have like the Washington Post or nothing like that. We didn't have any subscriptions. But I would get newspapers so I could get my mom coupons and we'd go to the store and there'd be a bag of saran wrap or a Ziploc bag of coupons. Make the people upset. <laughs> As if we cared, like this is saving us money. Like we're gonna add 80 more dollars to our bill because you don't want to scan this barcode. Quit. This is before they was had all the computers. Now, now you go in and you wish the people were there, right? Because it's all computers. And let's just be honest. You don't want to scan your stuff and put it in the bag, too. You don't want to do that. And I know it ain't just me. It's frustrating. You go in, you want to hurry up, get in and get out, and it's nothing but two people with 30 people in those lines and nine computer-based, and you got to scan it, and then it doesn't recognize it, and you got to go in and do all this, and sometimes you just be like, you know what, I don't even want the item anymore. I'm just leaving. I'm leaving. Or before Christ, I'm leaving with the item. Before that, I'm gone. Pay y'all next time. Man, next time I have somebody here to help me. But this is a, this is a time for that woman. This is a good opportunity. Listen, we, I'm going to be honest. Our church sometimes doesn't seize the moment to do stuff like that and create opportunities and create moments as a church. We miss those. We sign up late. We come to meetings late or don't come to meetings. We, we do that relatively often, but it's not often that there's an opportunity like this for the women in the church to come together and create a moment, create memories to do this. This is a, a I think it's going to be a good conference. When they came to me with it and I looked at the content and who was speaking and what it was going to be about, I thought it would be really good for the women in the church to, to come together and do that. So, uh, LaShawn, I believe, is here. I thought she's out in the hallway. Okay, if anybody's in the hallway uh, and they're talking to people, tell them, the, the pastor said, come in, there's a bear out there. Come in, come into the, Chris is the bear. Chris is the bear. That's the enforcer. That's the Samuel Jackson of the church right there. He's going to tell you. He's going to tell you that you got to come in here. People be in the hallway like it's nothing. All right, so listen, ladies, if, if you are here and you haven't signed up yet, there's a, there's a discount. Today's the last Sunday. LaShawn is here. Please see her and get to her. And again, this is, this is really a moment for the women in the church. This is a good opportunity for you all to get away for, I think it's a day and just to learn together, laugh together, eat together somewhere and then come back and apply that. So please take advantage of that opportunity if you can. All right, for us guys, we will have a, a, a game night. Um, we playing some PlayStation and Xbox yeah. and stuff like that. We'll let you know when that is. Yeah. You know when that is. The Lord has spoken. <laughs> we gonna have, you know, we need a debate. We need a debate team. And it's, I want to debate. I want to have a debate team in the church. So, get to me. Look, some people are like, uh-oh. Uh, I'm not talking about sinfully be argumentative towards other people. What I'm talking about is discussing ideas. We need a debate team. I, I really think, and I have some friends that have churches that think they got people in their churches that know what they're talking about. So I will organize a debate on the topics. Get to me after church. I, I want to fight with a couple people in church churches. So a few of my friends have been talking a little too much these days. And your church is not that far away. We will come see you. We, we the rock. 
This is the rock. We will come at your door. All right, if you have a Bible, which you should because you went church on Sunday, if you don't, if you don't ask for forgiveness, have, if you have a Bible or a Bible app, open it to Romans chapter 4. We are continuing in a series in the book of Romans, which is easily the most theological, most dense book in the scriptures. It's a book that Paul wrote on behalf of God to explain in graphic, elongated detail what it means to believe in Jesus Christ and by default what it doesn't mean. And so he's developing this argument. And I want to I want to present a motif. I should have presented this motif at the beginning of this series, but I want to present this now. This is pretty much I want you to see this as sort of a courtroom. This is the book of Romans is sort of like a courtroom. And Paul is not the prosecution. He's actually the defense attorney. The prosecution is humanity and people who think that they can be right with God or, or can get to heaven, if you will, or be justified. Justification is sort of the, the biblical term, which means you're declared not guilty by God. People think that you can do that in certain ways. And so what Paul is trying to do is give a biblical defense in this courtroom of why you cannot do that, that, that justification has to be by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Outside of that, you're not. You're guilty. The judge, who is God, says you're guilty. So Paul is giving a defense that salvation can only be found in Jesus Christ. It's not found in intellect. It's not found in personality. It's not found in tenure in the church. It's not found in uh, longevity of confession of being a believer. It's found in genuine faith in Jesus Christ that will produce works of obedience. But in Paul's day, in the, in the courtroom, the prosecution consists of people who would be called Gentiles, they're non-Jewish people, and these are people that have their own way of salvation, which is their mind, their intellect, or they worship other gods. And then there are people who are Jewish, whom God chose to be the people in which salvation would come to the world. They think it's by the law that, that Moses came with in Exodus 20, where you see what we initially call the Ten Commandments. It's, it's deeper than the Ten Commandments, but the Ten Commandments, in a sense, are what you think of when you think of the law. And then through circumcision, which was an act that God created for, uh, for male children, boys, eight days old, to have a part of their anatomy cut off was circumcised. And that was indication that they were a part of this covenant. They were God's people. The problem was once Jesus came, all of that changed, but they were still holding on to this way of salvation, this way of justification. So Paul, as a defense attorney, is making an argument to show why they're wrong. And so in this particular scene, pivoting off of what he said in Romans 1.16, which we, when we did the review of 1 through 3 last week, Romans 1.16 is sort of the, that's his opening statement, if you will. That's the thesis where he says this in Romans 1.16. Turn there if you have it. If you don't, you should. And I can't even find my uh, Bible thing on here, which is wild. This is how the Lord does it. How dare you tell them to turn to their Bibles? And I, so he hid mine from me. <laughs> and the Lord hid his Bible from him, his Bible out. And so, and so he could not see it. And 
humble pie flew as a spirit above. All right, so here's what he says. In Romans 1, 16 and 17, here's what he says. This is the thesis statement, and everything that Paul is saying after this for the next few chapters will be proving this point. So if he's addressing the court, he is addressing the court of public opinion of the world, and this is his opening remark, and this is what he's trying to defend for the rest of this book is this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, which is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, quoting the, what we would call the Old Testament, the righteous will live by faith. That's his opening statement, and he's defending this from Romans 1.18 on throughout the majority of Romans. So here we are at chapter four, and Paul brings in two witnesses here. These are two star witnesses to make his case. The prosecution also had one of the witnesses, but they didn't ask the right questions. So Paul now is cross-examining, if you will, the witness, and it's proving to be a star witness from the defense. We're going to get to that in just a moment. This is important for us, even though the scripture is almost 2,000 years old. Here's why it's important for us. Because there are people in this room right now who define their confidence in God based on things that are outside of what God says. And we all know people who do that. So you get the, hey, I'm, I'm a good person. I haven't done much to people. I haven't hurt anyone. I haven't, why do I need to? What do I have to believe in God for? Like, why well, I believe it? I can do this. I don't need to do this. I'm, I'm an all right person. I don't do this. And they start naming off things that they've done. That's, that's the law to them. In their minds, they're saying, I'm good enough to get to your heaven because I don't do these things. And then you have people who have been believers, who have been believers for quite some time, and they may be caught in thinking, hey, I've been a Christian for 40 years, so I'm good. But you've cooled off. You've like, you've cooled off. The, the, where's the perseverance? Then you have people who profess to believe, but then think that, hey, I made a profession of faith that I'm living, but then I'm going to live how I want. And that's good because grace is amazing. Or they might even understand the scriptures enough to say, hey, we're not saved by works, but by faith. But genuine faith produces work, right? Amen. Like if you were to say to someone, hey, we're good friends, and you never talk to them, even the world knows this, actions speak louder than words, right? right. The world knows that. Mm -hmm. The world knows actions speak louder than words. Well, so does God. So does God. Obedience speaks louder than confession. Obedience speaks louder than confession. So there's a lot of people who profess to believe, but then they don't have any obedience to back that up. Or there was some, now there isn't any, or there's still some, and it becomes murky. And they're confident with that. You know, I happen by God's grace to have be friends with pastors in different parts of the country, and there's a theme that everyone has seen, from the biggest theologians to the little dudes like me, little 
not literally speaking, we all know I'm John Big. I'm talking about little in terms of societal influence. I have some, but the guys who have much more than me, and they all say the same thing. The church in America, the American church, it's not doing well. It's not doing well. It's not doing well. And a lot of it, it comes from a lack of what is a word that's hardly used anymore in the church, a lack of personal holiness. The church is so divided right now, it's like we're the, we're the Beth mathematicians. It's incredible how divided the church is. And you know what's interesting? In, in 2 Kings 22, Josiah is the king, and he sends this guy to, they're rebuilding the temple, and he sends this guy named Shaphan to, to, give, to make sure that money gets distributed to the right places so that the temple gets rebuilt. And then he, this guy, Shaphan, finds the book of the law of the Lord. And so he gives it to Hilkiah, the prophet. And Hilkiah goes and reads it to King Josiah. And Josiah, when he hears the word being read, he cries, rips his clothes, and then tells the prophet, go and inquire to the Lord for us because our ancestors have strayed away from the law of the Lord. When he heard that, he, looked, he thought about how we're living. He just broke down that this was the king of, of Jerusalem, king of Israel. That's what the American church is missing. We're so caught up on all these different things from politics to sexuality to all of this. that if we just stopped and said, let's evaluate 400 years of Christianity in America. Let's just evaluate it. This was a country founded on Jesus Christ, and right now, people are more excited to argue over who's preaching an accurate gospel instead of saying, let's accurately evaluate the fruit of gospel preaching. This is what we do. We have to accurately evaluate the fruit of gospel preaching. But there's so much division on who's preaching the accurate gospel that you fail to see. The problem is not have we been preaching the gospel for 400 years. The problem is have we been obeying it? And are we in a place where we can look at uh, and say, wow, look at the grace of God. On our, I, I think if we were honest, we would be like, we could use a bit of that law being read in our hearts, grieving over maybe what we've done individually and just where we're at as a church. This book is important because we may not struggle with the specific things that he's bringing up in this text, but we are surrounded with it and must remind ourselves consistently that we're only justified. We're only good with God because of faith in Jesus Christ. And that doesn't change based on longevity of Christianity or tenure in the church of position or how much you give and giving and all of those things and how much you serve. And those are wonderful things. But at the end of the day, it's Jesus Christ, his finished work, our faith in that and work that is done because we have faith in Jesus Christ. This is what's at stake. And I would be a fool to think that it's not at stake in our church in some way, shape, or form. So what he's trying to do here in, in, in Romans 4, knowing that this is a, a reality, 
he's now going to call one of the star witnesses to the stand. And so this is what we're going to do. We're going to do three things today, this morning. Hopefully, do three things. The first is we're going to try to understand the passage, Romans 4, verses 1 through 8. The second thing we're going to do, I want to answer this question. What did Abraham believe that made him righteous? What did he believe? And then the third question I want to answer, or the second question I want to answer, which is the third thing we're going to look at, is how is our faith like Abraham's? How is it like Abraham's? Like, why is it that we are considered, biblically speaking, sons of Abraham, sons and daughters of Abraham? Why is that the case? All right, bear with me. This stuff is for lack of the spirit in us to give us a desire to know this. This stuff is boring. Because it's just not the way we talk, it's not the way we think, it's not our language. We're culturally disconnected from that. So I just, I'm going to pray in the moment the Spirit would give us grace to understand this and, 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 and visualize this as a courtroom and see what Paul is trying to communicate that will be beneficial for us. Let me pray. Father, you knew that for for your glory, that at some point in time, literature had to be written down and recorded that would transcend time and culture, that would, that would be around for as long as you want it to be until you return and reclaim those who have professed faith in you that are still alive and judge the world, those who rejected faith in you. Books like this are very dense for us, and they can be difficult for us to understand or get excited about or feel like, how does this apply in my life? But, but even if we just read this to get further information about who you are and what you've done, that's applicable to us because we belong to you. But I pray this morning that even a passage such as Romans 4, these eight verses, would be something that connects with us, that we would see ourselves in this passage and that we could benefit from this in some way, shape, or form, ultimately for your glory, but also for our good. Lord, I lack the capacity to make any difference in what I say, and my personality or my experience or my understanding of these words mean nothing unless you place it in people's hearts for it to be true. So while I am the mouthpiece this morning, I am ineffectual unless you do the work. So I pray that this church would hear a better sermon than I'm able to preach this morning so that you are ultimately glorified. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, let's try to understand this passage. Let's read uh, Romans 4, 1 through 8. I'm reading from the CSB version. If you have a different translation, shame on you. All right, here we go. All right. What then, as we says, what then will, will, what then will we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now to the one who works, pay is not credited as a gift, but as something owed. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who declares the ungodly to be righteous, his faith is credited for righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the person to whom God credits apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the person the Lord will never charge with sin. All right, so let's try to contextual, let's understand what he's saying right here. 
All right, so here's the first star witness. It's Abraham. This is a good witness to put on the stand because Abraham, we are the descendants. We are the descendants of Abraham if we have faith in Jesus Christ. And this is seen in different parts of the scriptures. Abraham is used significantly in the New Testament in the book of James. Paul also uses them in, other, in Galatians to make the point about Abraham and how was Abraham credited as righteous from God? How did that happen? Did it happen because of stuff Abraham did or because of something Abraham believed? That's the issue. How are you righteous? How, why are you going to heaven? Is it because of something you did or something you believed? That's what's at stake. There's a lot of people in Paul's day and in our day who think it's because of something they did. Now, for the Jews, they thought, well, we keep the law and we're circumcised. So that's, that's it. We're, we're good. We're God's people. What's the problem? And there are people today like, I'm a good person. I, hey, I, I became a Christian when I was nine years old. I haven't been to church since then, but I don't need religion. I'm, I have a good relationship with God. I'm spiritual. People who think that. And there are people who think, I believe in Jesus Christ. That's all I got. <laughs> that doesn't mean I just say I believe and I live like a hellion. It just means this is what I got, though. Why I live the way I live is because I believe this and only this. Otherwise, what would be the point? There's a lot you give up as a Christian that is fun and pleasurable to you because you have faith in Jesus Christ and you want to honor him. Otherwise, what's the point? If, if, if this stuff isn't real... Or if Jesus doesn't really care how we live, then we might as well all be partying. We might as well all do all the things that give us pleasure in this life, whether they're good or bad, because what's the point? But the point is there is a point. And so he's getting at that. So he begins with, with asking, with making this statement. What then will we say that Abraham, our father, according to the flesh is found? In other words, he's saying, all right, well, let's, let's check with Abraham. What does, what do we know of Abraham? What would Abraham say about this in a sense? Now, Abraham's obviously not there in the flesh, but he wants to use the knowledge that they've gotten from the recorded literature about Abraham's life. So his point in verse one is saying, okay, let's ask Abraham this. In other words, as an analogy, I'd like to call Abraham to the stand. What would he say about this? What's his perspective on this dilemma? How, what, what is it? Is the issue what I've done, what you do, or what you believe? that makes you right before God. This is still a very, very significant issue. So he opens up with that. Here's a star witness of the defense. He asks this question, and it's a, it's a, these are all rhetorical questions. Paul isn't asking this for people to answer. He's not saying, so what would Abraham say? And someone's like, yeah, hey, put your hand down, man. You know, it's, one, it's like that. It's not something that he's expecting people to answer. He's using this rhetoric to help them understand, okay, yeah, what, what, what would he say about that? Rhetorical questions are meant to make you think about how you would answer, not to be answered. They're, they're intended to make you think about what's being asked. So he's saying he's been laying this argument that being a Jew essentially means nothing. Being circumcised means nothing unless you have faith in Jesus Christ. And so then he says, let's ask Abraham. And so in verse 2, he lays it out. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. This is but not before God. This is an important statement because what he's saying is, listen, if Abraham, the one whose faith that we're like, the father of our faith, the forefather of our faith, if he has, if he's justified by what he did, 
then he can boast about that. But this is why this is important. Because in salvation is not from God. You see, if salvation could be, uh, if you could get to heaven just by what you do, what you and I do, then Jesus coming and dying on the cross was completely unnecessary. That's what's at stake. So if you really can be a good person, you don't cheat on your taxes, you don't lie, you don't steal, you don't hurt anyone, and that's the standard, then you don't even have to have faith that there is even a God to get to heaven. So if that's true, if what I do is the measure of why I get to be justified, why I'm declared righteous before God, then what in the world is Jesus here for? What are we singing to him for? We should be singing Luke 18 songs. Lord, I tithe all the time and I never do this stuff. Look at this dude right beside me. He's rough. I mean, we would have all these. That was a freestyle too, you know. Put something together, lay it over a beat. We'll make it work. But that's what you would do. You'd be, it'd be Luke 18. You'd be comparing yourself. Remember the story of the Pharisee? That there's a guy in the church, in the temple, who's saying, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Like, he's aware of his weaknesses. And the Pharisee walks in and says, man, look at this dude. And says, Lord, I'm glad I'm not like him. That's the kind of songs we would be singing. We'd be singing songs about how good we are compared to the next person. And you know what? There would be no fellowship. There would be no fellowship. You know why? Because you'd always be in competition and judgment over other people's works if your works were the reason why you could go to heaven. This is why it's this significant. Everything falls apart if it's based on what you do instead of what you believe. Everything falls apart. Church community is nothing. It's a social club. It might as well be a social club where people be saying, hey, how you doing? I can't stand them. That's how it would be. Some churches do that anyway. Don't do that here. Some churches do do that. I've been to churches where they do that. And I'm not damn here. He says, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Now, here's why he's saying this. This is a very popular belief among Jewish teachers that Abraham actually fulfilled the, the law before the law was given. So there are Jewish teachers that think that Abraham was perfect in his obedience before God actually said, this is how you obey. And Paul is saying, ah, uh, no, that's not true, because if that was the case, then he'd be justified by his works, by what he did. He would have something to boast about. But then he puts his caveat, but not before God. In other words, look, no man has any just cause to stand before God and say, look at what I've done. You can't say anything. No one will say that. No one will stand before God Almighty. First of all, you're not going to stand before God Almighty unless he holds you up. If in Revelation 1, when the apostle John saw Jesus, now remember, remember in John's gospel, John says this about seven or eight times, the apostle whom Jesus loved, referring to himself. I'm not sure how God saw that. I don't know if God got to heaven and was like, hey, look, man, I let you write that, but, man, I, you shouldn't have been writing that. Man, that's just, you know, it's like the apostle whom Jesus loved, right? That's, that's how John described it. He doesn't even say myself. He always is the apostle whom Jesus loved, like he ain't loved the rest of those dudes, right? Like John is different, right? So John has a vision, sees Jesus, and when he sees Jesus, he falls to the ground. He doesn't even recognize that that's his, the one who you said loves you. 
that would be wild if, I, if my kids came in and I, this is fine. I was like, I don't, who, who are you? I don't know you. They would think I'm joking at first. And if I was serious, they would be heartbroken. My granddad, when he passed away, he had dementia. And it got to a point where he didn't recognize us anymore. And the hardest part about losing him was that, man, I can't even say, hey, granddad, it's Cease. And he'd just look at me and he'd ask a question about something that he asked it before. And then I just let him talk about the old days. I just wanted to sit by him. He couldn't remember. And it was more hard, it was harder for my mom because that was her dad. It was, I'd watch her cry and then I'd be affected because he couldn't remember. He couldn't remember. It was sad. It was sad. The reality here that he's getting at is that we must remember the truth about Abraham. Because a lot of people, especially the Jews in this day, they don't remember. They don't remember how was Abraham justified. If you're saying you have the faith of Abraham, then you need to be justified the way Abraham was justified. And it's not by what he did, it's by what he believed. And he goes on to make this point. Not even Abraham can stand before God and boast. You will not stand before God and boast. John couldn't even, didn't even recognize that that was Jesus. The Spirit had to lift John up just so he could stand and face his good friend. None of us will stand before God unless he allows it, and none of us will boast about anything we've done. We will probably be ashamed the moment we see him because we'll realize, man, I should have... I should have done, I should have went to every, I should, that's what's going to happen. It's going to happen. He'll welcome us. He'll welcome us. But we're going to feel that sting. Just like, just like when my granddad passed, I realized, that I should have, I should have spent some more time with him towards the end. Not even Abraham can boast. So he sets this up. If Abraham is justified by works, then he can boast before you all, but not before God. The reason why he puts that, but not before God, because what's at stake here is not who are you in front of other men. It's who are you in front of God. Every, anyone can boast about anyone. There are people in here that are, they can boast about a lot. Yeah, man. You know, you ever met somebody who's just living in the glory days? Yeah, when I was in high school, man, I ran a 4240, and I was, this and Adam's going to go to, can you just like, man, you can't run a 50-minute 40-yard dash right now, bro. I mean, when I was in high school, I thought I was going Division I. I was a good athlete, basketball player. Now I dribble once and I'm gassed out. <laughs> He's going after this. He's going after this. Abraham is not justified by what he does. And let me, let me prove this to you. Then he says this in verse 3. For what does the Scripture say? This is the authority. What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. Abraham believed God. He's quoting Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. So here's, what he's trying to, here's the point he's trying to make. Faith in God is not a work. Belief is not a work. So you can't say, well, I have faith. That's a work that you've done. It's not a work. That's his point. Abraham believed God, 
and it was credited to him for righteousness. It's not a work, but it will produce works. And we'll see this in two, two, two sermons when we specifically talk a little bit more about Abraham. So he quotes Genesis 15, 6, says, here's what the scripture says. That's our authority. Scripture says this, Abraham believed God, believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then he goes into verse 4 and uses a very common sense analogy in verse 4. He says this, now to the one who works, pay is not credited as a gift, but as something owed. Because that's a common sense analogy, right? All of us believe this. There isn't a person in this room who doesn't believe this. Let me prove it. Hey, raise your hand if you have a job. Okay, good. I'm not trying to embarrass you if you don't. You're in between jobs. You got a job looking for one. I've been there. I get it. Okay, if you have a job, if you have a job, what's the one day you look forward to the most on your job? Payday. 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 Even though that, even though that money's gone before you get it, right? For most of us, that money's gone. You're going to scrape up a little something for dinner, go out to eat something. You may, you're going to splurge a little bit, maybe float a bill or two. We get it. But that money's gone, right? You can cover this next month, maybe double up on this next month. But you, yeah, that money's gone for the most of us, right? You get it? Good. Payday is what you look forward to. That's it. Now, if your boss came to you and said, hey, I don't have a check for you. I don't have a check for you. This was all just grace. I'll have a check for you. Like, you, you would be like, oh. first of all, you try to be a Christian cool. Hey, hey, man, stop playing around, man. You know, hey, where's the, where's the, then you'd be looking for, like, your other employees. Like, this is a joke. You probably did this. Uh, hey, did he tell you this? Man? Did he tell you this? But if he was serious, you would be offended. You would leave, threaten to quit, knowing that you don't got another job, Loma, but you'd just be angry. you say something, you know me. You'd be calling a better business bureau. You know why? Because you earned that money. You put in 40 hours or, or even worse. You ever got your check and be like, hey, wait a minute. This is a little bit shorter than, hey, is your check right? Did you get your check? <laughs> and you go in, can I talk to the man? Hey, my check is not right. Is there something wrong? Oh, it's, oh, okay, we'll fix it. You know? <laughs> you know how it is. You don't play with your money, right? If you work, this is a common sense analogy. Everyone would agree with this. There's no one that hasn't worked that, that knows they're getting paid. Unless you owe somebody in his work, and then you try to do it real quick because you don't want to have to pay him back. But it's a common sense analogy. If you work, you get paid. You get a paycheck. That's what he's saying. Verse 4. Now, to the one who works, pay is not credited as a gift, but it's something owed. Your boss is not going to tell you, hey, I was going to give you a gift to pay you, but I, I, I'm not going to this time. But thanks for putting in those 40 hours this past week. Some of y'all would be like, Kurt, I'm, you know, being escorted to prison. So his point is this, if Abraham actually did work, then his righteousness would be something that God owed him. It'd be something he was owed. He's due that. So the question is, does Abraham, does the scriptures teach that Abraham saw himself as being owed righteousness from God? Does the scriptures even communicate that Abraham was credited as righteousness, that it was owed to him by God for stuff that he did? Or was it something that he believed? That's the balance. See, if Abraham did some stuff that proved that did he earn that, then God, then his righteousness would be like, well, you've earned righteousness, man. And if Abraham's faith is by what he did, then so is ours. And therefore, we don't need Jesus. We don't need the Lord. 
This is significant. Then he switches to verse 5 and comes at the work differently. First, it's a common sense analogy that works in any place. Then in verse 5, he says this, but to the one who does not work, and it sounds like he's going to stay in the same motif of, uh, of a job, but then he switches. To the one who does not work, but believes on him who declares the ungodly to be righteous, his faith is credited for righteousness. So he switches from just a regular job to no one who's working for God, works righteousness. He's saying to the one who does not work, who is not given, does not have a lot of works, but has belief, and his work is seen here. He believes on him who declares the ungodly to be righteous. So he's saying the person who works, they're owed something. But to the person, now he's speaking in religious terms, to the person who does not work, but believes in him who declares the ungodly to be righteous, that's faith. So he's saying, look, this person, most of us, most of us, if we're honest, most of us, we're believers. Many of us are believers in this room and are going to heaven when we die. And we know that. We believe that. We have faith that that's true because the scripture teaches that. We believe that. But many of us are still scared to die. There's a part of it that's unknown that's scared. Like what happens immediately? What if? There's, there's just that part. You just feel that. And you may not feel that all the time, but there'll be moments, whether it's travel, maybe you're on a plane and you get a lot of turbulence and you think, oh man, this could be it. And the reality of your mortality comes in your face and you start thinking like, man, I wonder what God's going to say. I still struggle with this sin. Or I still, you're, you're aware of all this stuff that you don't do that measures up. Right? You're just aware of it. I think everyone who's a genuine Christian is aware of the ways that they fall short consistently. And I say genuine, not professing. Because I know a lot of professing Christians that do crazy stuff and that are not affected by it at all. Which means they're not really genuine Christians. But genuine Christians who have the spirit in them, who feel a level of guilt at times when they fall, we are aware that we fall short. We're aware of that. That's why at times we doubt God's love for us. We're honest in church, right? That's why we doubt God's love for us because we think it's connected to our obedience. But God's love for us is connected to our faith in Jesus. It's not connected to our obedience. So even this idea, this reality of works that you, works that you do versus something you believe, it affects even your identity in God. If God loves you based on what you do, I'm not saying God isn't glorified by that. God's not pleased by that. My love for my three sons has nothing to do with whether or not they obeyed me. As a matter of fact, when I held them in my arms for the first time, I knew three things. One, man, I love this little boy. Two, I would give my life to protect this little boy. And three, I hope they wild like me. I hope we have fun. <laughs> I was like, these are my kids. I loved them before he did anything. All he could do was cry and poop and eat. I love them. And even now, when my sons act out, we was, when we was on sabbatical and we was in California, there were some car trips, some road trips. We was like, hey, look, man, I'm looking in the mirror like, hey, look, what are y'all doing back there, man? Who's fighting with who? Well, he did this and he did that. I said, man, I'm getting ready to do something. Stop. <laughs> 
you know, sometimes you got to put the alpha male in and sometimes you can't be like, let me pull over. Hey, buddy, let me tell you. <laughs> you don't got time for that. I'm tired. I'm driving. Sometimes you got alpha male. Knock it off. Right, right. All dads babysit like that. Hey, knock it off. <laughs> That's how dads babysit. Knock it off. Y'all better stop that. Stop all that crying up there. That's how dads babysit. Knock it off. Hey. That's how, that's how we watch our kids. You know they say you laugh when you agree with it or you did it. So I love my kids before they did anything. That's how God sees his children. He doesn't love us because of what we did. He loves us because of what we believe. We believe in Jesus and he loves Jesus. And so he loves those who believe in Jesus. Now our works, please, when my sons are obedient, yeah, I'm happy about that. Of course. When they listen to mommy, listen to their dad or they do good in school, my sons all got good report cards. Chago got all A's and two B's. I couldn't believe it. He was upset. I said, son, I said, man, if I had this report card when I was you, I'd have ran for president when I was your age. <laughs> said, man, all A's and two B's. Son, what are you crying for? I said, Listen, this is it, son. I was proud of him. It's like God is proud of us for our obedience, but he loves us because of what we believe. And this is important. This is very important. Identity is at stake here. To the one who does not work, but believes on him who declares the ungodly to be righteous. Let's just be honest, we're ungodly, but God says you're righteous because of what you believe. That's what he considers faith. And that faith is not a work. And that's why you're given righteousness. That's why God will declare you not guilty, even though you've sinned consistently. And many of us will sin probably the moments before we die. And all of us aren't going to die in our sleep or, or die in a way that we're prepared for. it. Some of it might just be sudden. You might be one of them shouldn't have been texting on your phone and now you're standing before the Lord. None of us are going to have everything covered for. None of our works are ever going to outdo our sins. They're not. They're not. If, if, if Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, just those two fulfill the law and the prophets. Now think about how often you do those on a daily basis. There are probably, I don't know if anyone's ever really done those apart from Jesus. So let's just say that those two things are hardly done. That's two sins that are happening all the time, all your life, every day. You are not going to be able to outdo those with any works. You're not. And when you die, there are going to be things you didn't ask for forgiveness for. But God says, no, I love you because of what you believe. And the works that you do please me because you did them because you believe. That's what makes Christians different. We resist things and obey God because of what we want to honor the Lord, not because we want to make a contribution to society. Or I want to be a better person. I don't do things because I want to honor the Lord. That's the real motive. That's a motive that comes from the spirit. So when you do those things, the Lord is pleased. But his love, oh, that's because of what you believe. What you do, you'll be rewarded for. But his love is because of what you believe, or rather who you believe in, which is Jesus Christ. So Paul makes his presentation to star witness, Abraham, listen, the father of our faith does not have a works righteousness perspective. 
He does not think he's going to heaven because of something he did. The scripture says he's right with God because of what he believed. And if that's the father of our faith and whose faith we must imitate, then it has to be the same for us. So if you're putting faith in what you do, then you don't ha- you're not going to make it. You're not going to make it. That's his point. And then he calls another star witness to the stand in verses 6 through 8. And this is what he says. Just as David, King David, the most famous king to Israel, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the person to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And here's what it looks like. Here's what it means to be righteous before God. When it says God credited righteousness to you, means this is what it means. This, he's going to explain what it means right here in verse 7 and 8. And this is David quoting, he's quoting David in Psalm 32, 1 and 2. He says, it's blessed are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the person the Lord will never charge with sin. Here's what it means to be credited as righteousness from God because of what you believe. That when you stand before the Lord, he will not. Listen, when God says, I remember your sins no more, he's not talking about dementia. It's not, it's not spiritual dementia, nor is it he has, he's incapable of remembering. What he means is, I will never charge you against those sins. I will never treat you as those sins deserve. I don't remember the judgment that you deserve for the sins you've committed because you have faith in my son. And my son pleased me so much that I'm more, I'm more going to reward you for the works that you did after you had faith, the obedience that you had because you had faith in Jesus Christ. I'm going to do that. God's not going to say, oh, hey, I'm going to tell you lied when that's not going to happen. Remember that look you gave? That's not going to happen. He says, you had faith in my son? Come to the kingdom that's prepared for you. And here are rewards for demonstrating that faith. Here are some rewards for you. Here's more responsibility. Here's a home. Here's this. Here's that. Here's a glorified body. Here's this. Here's that. Because of Jesus Christ. So this is, what, this is what righteousness looks like. He doesn't count whose lawless, lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. So your acts are forgiven and your sins are covered. This is the Lord will never charge with sin. That is almost incomprehensible to me. Because I'm aware of stuff I've done. And the Lord's not going to say, yeah. You're in trouble for that one. When I was a kid, I used to get in trouble a lot, which was not surprising. And I could tell by how much trouble I was in by the tone of voice in which my mom would call my name when she came home. I knew it. So there were certain tones that I was like, man, I'm going to get a whooping. And there were certain tones like, all right, she's just going to yell at me. I knew them. So my mom came in and was like, cease. I was like, well, here we go. Let me put on a couple more underwear because I'm getting ready to get lit. I'm getting ready to get tore up. I knew it. Some of y'all didn't grow up and get spanked. Cool. My mother wasn't a Christian, but she applied those verses. <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't grow up in no Christian home, but I kid you not, spare the rod was on the mantle all the time. My mom had a, had a gold belt buckle. I knew it. Well, she was like, cease. I was like, all right, she's just going to probably scold me a little bit. Okay, cool. Then I would just, oh, well, I don't know why I did it. 
Here's what he's saying. David is saying, blessed is the one whose lawless acts the Lord will not count against them. Blessed are the men and women in this room who profess faith in Jesus Christ, who are going to be probably terrified like John the Baptist when we see him, because we're going to be aware of everything until he tells us, welcome home. Welcome home, my son, my daughter. We'll probably be in heaven like, man, but I did this. Like, hey, look, man, you good. You might run into someone like, hey, man, don't be bringing that up up here, man. <laughs> I ain't saying nothing. If the Lord says come in, I'm not reminding him of nothing. But Lord, what about that? Never mind, I ain't saying nothing. Because he didn't forget. But he's just choosing not to punish us for what we deserve. He's forgetting the punishment that comes from it, not what we've done to deserve it, because of what we believe. Because of what we believe, not because of what we've done. So what did Abraham believe that God credited as righteousness? To me, this is very fascinating. Because in Genesis 12, if you, have, if you, if you can turn there, it's the first book of the Bible. Turn there and go to chapter 12, the book of Genesis. Or if you have an app, you should get there even quicker. If you can't get there with a Bible app, you need help. That ain't but a couple of, a couple of, twi- couple of clicks. All right, but Genesis 12, 1 through 7, this is, this is the first introduction. He'll be called Abram here, but it's Abraham later on. But I'm going to call him Abraham. I'll read it, but when I speak of him, I'm going to call him Abraham, not Abram. This is, this is his first introduction to God, and here's what it says. The Lord said to Abram, go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot and all possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the site of Shechem at the Oak of Moreh. At the time, the Canaanites were in the land. So the Lord said, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Okay, now go to chapter 15. This is some time later. This is roughly 10 to 15 years later in Abraham's life. From what we just read, 15 years later or so, here's the scene. Genesis 15. After these events, referring to what happened in verses chapters 13 and 14, The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Abram continued, look, you've given me no offspring, so so a slave born in my house will be my heir. Now the word of the Lord came to him, this will not be, this one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars if you are able to count them. Then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. Now we're used to reading that, but here's a question you have to ask. Abraham believed God in Genesis 12. When God said, go to this other country and I will make you a possession and all of that, Abraham did it. So why wasn't he credited with righteousness then? Because he believed God in Genesis 12. 
Why is it in Genesis 15, 6, that Abram believed God and was credited as righteousness? I mean, didn't he? He says, I will, look, he says, Genesis 12, he tells him, go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house of the land. I will show you. I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great. You'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham went as the Lord told him. But it does not say he was credited as righteousness then, but he would believe God. I think that suffices to say that he believed God. So why is it until 156 that he's credited as righteousness then if he, if he did what God said in Genesis 12? Okay, let's add another something to this. In Genesis 15, verse 2 and 3, this is the first time in three chapters that we see Abraham actually communicating with God. In Genesis 12, Abraham didn't say a word. At least it's not recorded. God told him to do it. Abraham left. It's not until he has this vision, and in this vision, now he communicates back to God. God summarized the same thing he told Abraham in Genesis 12. He says this, I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. He says, do not be afraid. doesn't say what Abraham was afraid of, but I think the passage is clear. Now, note that Abraham's question, Lord God, what can you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliaskar of Damascus? This isn't a question of unbelief. Abraham recognizes, man, I'm 90 years old. You told me I was going to have an heir in Genesis 12, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And I was 75 then. Genesis 12, 4 says that Abraham was 75 years old. So you're talking 10, 15 years later. Now he's 90 years old. And he's thinking, well, how am I going, how's this going to happen? It wasn't unbelief. It's kind of like Mary. When Mary said, well, how can this be? I'm a virgin. How will I be pregnant? It wasn't unbelief. It wasn't doubting God. It was questioning, okay, I trust you. Like, how is this going to play out? Now, here's what this shows me, that from Genesis 12 through all the stuff that happened up to Genesis 15, that Abraham has been thinking about this. How is this going to happen? He believed God in Genesis 12, but he's thinking, how is this going to happen? This is significant to him. Now, in Genesis 12, the promise that God made is somewhat vague. He says this in Genesis 12, too. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. But in Genesis 15, 4 and 5, it's more specific. It says, this one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the numbers. If you were able to count them, then he said to them, your offspring will be that numerous. So from Genesis 12, I'm going to bless you and make you into a great nation. No specificity. Abraham's wondering, how's that going to come about? Genesis 15, Abraham's struggling. He's concerned. God says, don't be afraid. I'm going to make you into a great nation. So what is it that Abraham believes that makes him righteous? Well, here's what he believes, that God's going to give him a son. He trusted that even though I'm 90 years old, I believe you that you're going to give me a son of my own body and he's going to be my heir. He's going to be my heir. Now, there's more I want to say, but I'll be able to say that in two messages. Let me come back to, to this. So this is what Abraham believed. that You're going to give me a son and he's going to be my heir. And God credited that as righteousness. God didn't say when Abraham got up and left, you know why? Because that would have been work. That was work. He got up and left. 
That was work. He did something. This promise, he does nothing. He does nothing. God says, I'm going to give you a son. He does nothing. So here's a question. How was our faith like Abraham's then? Our faith is almost identical to his. Let me explain. Notice that Abraham's faith wasn't credited until he had faith that God was going to give him a son that was going to be his heir. Even though Abraham believed God from his first interaction, there was something about believing that God's going to give him a son that made him righteous. Now, these particulars are important. Abraham believed that God would give him a son to be his heir. Here's the irony. We believe that God gave his son and made us co-heirs. Righteousness of Abraham is connected to faith in his having a son. Righteousness from us is connected to faith in God's son. But here's the other catch. For Abraham to believe God that he was going to have an heir, in one sense, Abraham believed that from this heir that he would be the blessing of many nations, from this son. Now, I'm going to unpack this in two messages, but Genesis 3, 6, Galatians 3 talks about the offspring that God references in 12, 7, Genesis and 13 is singular. It's Jesus. It's offspring, not plural. It's a person. And Paul says in Galatians 3, which we'll get to that in two messages, that's about Christ. So here's what this means then. Abraham believing God that he's going to give him a son and an heir, that he'll be the father of many nations and being blessed in many nations, is basically Abraham believing in Jesus Christ, even though he wouldn't know he existed. So Abraham is believing in Jesus Christ, even though he's never going to meet him in his lifetime. Because that's what came from him eventually. And the offspring that Paul points to that God said, this is the one I'm going to give the land to, was singular, not plural. Galatians 3 tells us it's Christ. So Abraham, even in Genesis 15, is believing in Jesus Christ. He's believing that he's going to have a son that's going to be a co-heir, and you and I believe in the son, and we're co-heirs of Christ. Identical. Identical. This offspring, Jesus, would lead to many people having faith in God. So here's the theme. Righteousness from God is always connected to his son. Always connected. From Genesis 15, 6 to 2018. Righteousness from God is connected to faith in his son. And I just think it's so fitting for God to make his son be his heir. And so we have faith that God gave his son and makes us co-heirs with Christ. The scripture calls us, we'll get to this in Romans 8, we're co-heirs, which means what Christ receives from the father, he's going to share with us in heaven. Man, there's so much more I want to say, but the 
two, two sermons from now when we do uh, 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 16 through 23, we'll be able to unpack that. Our faith in the Lord and our righteousness, our standing before God, the fact that God says, hey, you can go to heaven, is not going to be because of what we've done. It's going to be because of who we believe. God loves us because of who we believe. Because of who we believe. What we do, as James said, faith without works is dead, right? So you don't profess to believe and live the opposite of what you believe to be true. You know, Jesus said, if you let me obey my commandments. So you don't profess to believe and then do the opposite of what he said do. But when you profess to believe and you fight, struggle, and persevere, stumble in some ways, but keep fighting to do what he said do, then we're Abraham. Our faith is like the faith of Abraham. Abraham believed in seed form in Jesus. He believed that God would give him an offspring that he would give this land to, and that was Jesus. That's what he was worried about. He was worried about what's going to happen. And if you, if, you, if you really want to step back and look at this, what Abraham is worried about is what's going to happen after I die. He says, I'm, I'm 90 years old. I don't have an heir. This dude's going to have to be, something has to happen after I die for you to keep your promise and what you said 15 years ago. What's going to happen after I die? It's the same question that all of us ask and have. What's going to happen after we die? He promises Abraham a son, and he's promised us his son. The same thing, just 5,000 years apart. What a consistent, faithful God 